Good morning, gang. How's everyone doing? Good. Can we thank the band? And by band, I may know Mead and Andrew. Um, and also Bobby, whose painting will make sense, I promise, at the end of all this. Awesome. Uh, my name is Josh. If this is your first time here, I'm the pastor here. I'm on this uh, microphone because our lab gave out this morning, so forgive me for this in my face. Um, well, yeah, so we're in a series called Story, and what we've been doing is going through sort of the major stories of the Bible. We're kind of playing the hits, if you will, at Resonate. So we took out a children's Bible, and we went through the table of contents, and we said, what are like the major stories that we kind of take for granted in a church scenario? When, when you walk into an average church and the pastor says, hey, could you open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 2? And you have no idea what Deuteronomy is. You have no idea uh, because you didn't bring a Bible. You have no clue what 2 means. I mean, all of this stuff makes really confusing. And then on top of that, he'll mention something like, oh, and we all remember Job. And you're like, I don't remember Job. I don't know who you're talking about. So what we want to do as a new community, as a church that literally just launched with new fresh vision about a month ago, is we want to take everyone through the sort of like starter stories in the Bible, the big ones that we can reference from here on out and, and always look back to because uh, they're major. And so we've done creation. We've done Cain and Abel. Uh, we've done Adam and Eve. We did Noah's Ark. Uh, last week we did Jacob. And uh, last week we did Joseph and his coat. And this week brings us to Moses. And Moses is an incredibly important story. This is actually the one that I'm most excited to talk about. Actually, next week is going to be uh, the Exodus story, which is actually God freeing the Israelites from the oppression of Egypt. And that's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. So we're going to be here next week. That's going to be really, really cool. But this morning, we get to focus on this character of Moses and who this guy is uh, and why he's so important, not only in our religion. So Moses is a key figure in Christianity in Judaism, in fact, he's like the most important figure in Judaism, and then also in Islam. So this guy makes the rounds. He's an important key figure in just religion in general. And so what we're going to do this morning is unpack why that is and why his encounter with a bush that's lit on fire uh, is relevant to our lives today and why it's important. But before we do that, I'd love to just pray over the space and us. So let's pray together. God, I am just... Uh, and I'm so grateful for this community. I'm so grateful that you uh, have us gather as the church and that we're able to um, just express uh, a little bit of who you are and a little bit of who we are. And we get to do that all through the lens of this incredible story, this incredible narrative that you have, uh, have had written down, which is such a crazy guide that we get to experience. And so this morning, Lord, this story is so, so good. So I pray that I would do a good job preaching it, uh, and I pray that we would get something new out of Moses' encounter with the divine, Moses' encounter with you and how his life was forever changed. Amen. Uh, so, Moses, a little catch-up to get us started. Last week, we focused on Joseph, and uh, the, the end of that story was that Joseph basically becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. And he rises to this rank of real huge importance. And because of Joseph, Egypt is not only sustainable through a major, major famine, but it's actually like the key power in the whole famine that keeps all of the surrounding lands afloat. Because Joseph took one-fifth of every uh, portion of grain every year and stored it away, Egypt was able to hold on through seven years of just awful drought, awful famine, awful, like, hurt. And, and so Joseph does that, and Joseph becomes this, like, amazing figure to Pharaoh. He's, like, a key leader in Egypt. 
but when we enter the story of Exodus, so this is our first week out of Genesis, by the way. When we enter the story of Exodus, the mood seems to have shifted, and the only explanation that we get is that there's a new pharaoh. So the old pharaoh has passed away, the one that knew Joseph, and the scripture literally just says the new pharaoh just doesn't really care about Joseph. So we have a, a nation that's moved into Egypt. Israel has essentially come into Egypt, and the whole family and the whole tribe, and now the whole nation is thriving within a nation. And so Pharaoh does what every good Bible villain does, and he sees that this group is, is growing. This his Hebrew group is growing and is kind of getting out of control. So he's going like, soon these people are going to be like way too powerful for us to even like control. So like, let's, let's oppress them. So he sends in slave masters and oppresses the Israelites into slavery and basically forces them to work for him, building his empire as slaves. So we go from this prominence of Joseph, this like promise, this hope. And then when we pop into Exodus, we're left like, like with some real hurt and devastation. And even beyond that, it gets worse. So Israel is now enslaved. They are slaves. They are working for Pharaoh for no pay under really, really harsh circumstances to build outrageous buildings for the kingdom of Egypt. And Pharaoh doubles down on his biblical villain and, and says they're still growing. Like They're still going to be too powerful. Even if we've enslaved them, something more drastic has to happen to keep them under control. And what he does is just awful. He tells uh, his people that if there is a, uh, or the midwives of the day, he tells them if there is a boy that's born of any Hebrew slave, you are to throw that baby in the Nile. The Nile was a prominent river that was nearby. And so, like, if there was a baby boy born into a Hebrew family, they would find out, and they would go, and they would murder this child. So let's just hang there for a second, because I, I grew up, I don't know, how many, how many of you guys ever went to Sunday school as a kid? Did anyone go to Sunday school? So you give us a little background on this. I grew up, do we have that picture of uh, that fabulous 90s movie? Is it in there, Alex? A little bit further down, boom. This is what I grew up on, Prince of Egypt, and uh, that next picture, please. And it had a sweet soundtrack with these two lovely ladies. And in that narrative, uh, they kind of skip by the whole, like, you know, baby-killing enslavement thing. It's not really a, a, a thing that they harp on in uh, this 1993 motion picture. We can go away from Mariah now. In, uh, in the oh, well, that one works, too. We can keep that. That's great. Um, <laughs> but I want us this morning to kind of really sit in the seriousness of what that must have been like. We're going we're gonna to put our, our, ourselves within this devastating reality and story. To these people, they didn't sign up for this. Like They came to Egypt because Joseph was this big, powerful ruler, and they arrive, and then years later, they find themselves enslaved and in the middle of this terrible genocide. How did that happen? Where did God go? God is all over the story of Joseph. God is all over this narrative of Genesis. He seems to have this plan for these people. And then instantly in Exodus, it seems like God is just nowhere to be found. The hurt and the oppression and the, the murder that's going on, where's a good God in the midst of all of that? So in the midst of all this hurt, in the midst of this genocide, in the midst of this great oppression, in all of that and into that, Moses is born. And Moses is super, super, super important because this is a male Hebrew child that lives. Just right from the beginning of the story, he very well should have been thrown in the Nile River. 
never should have been alive, but his mother is able to hide him until he's about three months old, and she can't hide him anymore. So right, right from the start, there's a miracle. Like, this is a Hebrew child that's born and is saved. So we have to look at that and go, like, why is the scripture writer including this story of the beginning of this? Why, why not just skip to where Moses comes in and he parts the Red Sea and does all the fancy stuff? Why are we focusing on the way that he was born? And the reason that we focus on the way that he's born is in the Hebrew culture, your origin story was super, super, super important, especially when it came to passing down these stories. If you could tell the story of Moses, you would start with how he was born because that miracle is a symbol for the miracle that is to come. The reason that he is alive and saved points to what's going to happen, points to his purpose later on in the story. And so, okay, so he's three months old. Uh, Mom can't hide him anymore. This is a three-month-old baby. There's screaming going on. Uh, They're going to get caught. And so she devises this plan where she builds this little basket. She puts tar around the edges and makes it sort of watertight. And the symbolism here is huge because Moses would have been thrown into the Nile and drowned as a baby, right, under this, this genocide rule of this crazy pharaoh that's going on. But his mom places him in a place of safety, this basket, and the Hebrew word for that basket is actually the same word that they use for ark. So Noah's ark, go back a couple stories. So she places him in this ark, this place of safety, and pushes him down the Nile River. So instantly we have the origin story. We have this awesome symbolism. We have foreshadowing going on. This story is so good. And I want to really harp on the power of the mother in this story for a second. And that's something that doesn't often get. We skip right by it and we go like, oh, well, he ends up you know, doing all this stuff. But the mom's role here, the bravery that it would have taken this woman to to hide this child and then to have to place their child into a basket, floating down the river, just not really knowing what's going to happen, but knowing that they'll be safer floating down a river in a basket than they will in my own home. Can you imagine the sort of hurt and devastation that you're walking into in that? So another miracle happens. Moses is placed among the reeds in the Nile, and uh, all of a sudden, like, it's, it's Pharaoh's daughter who's there bathing in the Nile. And she sees this basket, and she probably hears, like, some crying. She's like, what is going on in that basket? She sends someone out. This is typical Pharaoh daughter style. She sends someone else to get in the river to go get it. So someone else, one of her servants, grabs the basket, and they find that it's this baby boy. And the scripture even says this is, one of, this is a Hebrew child. So they knew. Like, they're like, oh, boy, this is, this, is a, this is a baby boy. He's a Hebrew boy. This baby should not be alive. And the miracle that happens here is, is through God's grace, Pharaoh's daughter looks at this child, and she just can't bear it. And she says, like, we're going to save this kid. So the, the, the servant that went into the reeds to go grab Moses says, do, do you want me to find one of the Hebrew women to, like, nurse this baby? Because you're not going to be able to do that. Pharaoh would never stand for that. So she goes, yes. And who do they find but mom? So they find Moses' mom, and Moses' mom is able to nurse and raise Moses legally until he's old enough to go and join Pharaoh, around 13 years old. So let's, let's sort of hunker into the identity crisis of Moses at this point. You are a 13-year-old, excuse me, a 13-year-old boy, and you've been raised in your biological mother's home and by your biological mom. So you're, you're, you're soaking in all of the Hebrew culture, and you're being raised as a Hebrew boy, and then when you're 13, you are thrown into Pharaoh's court, and you are now a child of Pharaoh. 
So you were a slave, raised by slaves, and now you are attending the best schools. You're dressing in the fanciest clothes. You've got the best chariot around. You look like that, that story thing we had up there before. You, you're dressed in all of the Egyptian majesty. Can you imagine what it would be like at 13 years old to be thrown into that? So Moses is raised with this sort of identity crisis, this crazy, challenging uh, story and narrative. He's, he's looking around, and it, you have to remember that if this genocide thing was real, Moses would have been like one of the only Hebrews of his age. The only Hebrew male that would have been around would have been Moses. Maybe a couple other stragglers who were as lucky as him and their families were able to hide these children. But if you saw like a 10-year-old Hebrew boy walking around, it would be devastating because they would just call the police of the day and that would get taken care of. I mean, it was crazy. So he's looking around and he's seeing the oppression of his people. His family is enslaved. And here he is, this child of Pharaoh. So you can, you can only imagine how that's got to mess you up, right? It'll mess you up big time. And by the time Moses gets into early adulthood, it really has messed him up. It's, 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 he's been ruminating on it far too long. And, and it, whenever you do that, whenever you suppress feelings, whenever we, there's a difference between suppressing and repressing. Like if you're suppressing, that's you doing that to yourself. So you're going like, don't, don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to feel this. Repressing is like hiding it from others, but suppressing is awful. It's like, I'm not going to feel this. I'm going to push it way deep down. And as we all probably know, the more you cram in there, the more you push deep, deep down, the more likely you are to snap. So Moses sees uh, this, this Egyptian guard just laying in to a Hebrew man. And again, remember, there are no Hebrew children, so this Hebrew man would have been like an older man. So picture like a big guard just whipping a, a like, like pretty defenseless older Hebrew man. And Moses sees this, and he just, like, he can't take it. All of that stuff that he's been suppressing, all of that weird identity crisis stuff comes out, and it comes out in, in rage. He snaps, and he kills the guard. And I, this, is the, this is the crazy part about this story, and that we have to, it, all of this, by the way, is in the first, like, five verses of the opening book. This, this happens so, so quickly here. But in the place of privilege that Moses was, he was treated as one of Pharaoh's children. So in the place of privilege that he would have been in, uh, if Moses snapped and decided he was going to kill this guy, nowhere in Scripture does it describe Moses as this big, burly guy. In fact, the only thing that we know from Scripture about Moses is he was kind of a very humble-looking man, and he has a stutter. So this is a humble man with a stutter that's about to go murder this big Egyptian guard. And the symbolism and the crazy part about that in the story is that if Moses approached this man with the intention of, giving, of doing harm to him, that man would have had to have just taken it. Because this is the child of Pharaoh. The options in his head are, I let this happen now, and maybe I get off with like a beating, or I learn, like the, the powers that be learn that one of the children of Pharaoh has a problem with me and I'm definitely dead. So Moses uses his position of earthly power and of privilege and he uses it in an awful, awful way. And that, that's, that's actually like in the text. Um, so let's go to the text here. Uh, let me find this. Uh, this is chapter uh, 1, verses 11 through 15. And this is the, the text that describes Moses' actions. It says, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them in their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking his way, 
uh, and that seeing, seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked, uh, he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. And this is where the story, the plot thickens. When Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled, and Pharaoh went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Okay, so if you've been traveling with us through this series of story, you'll know that like, there, there seems to always be this moment where someone has to flee. <laughs> Jacob had to do this. Cain had to do that. Something drastic happens, and it causes the, the person, the character, to have to step out into risk. And I think the important part in that that we can all learn from is that Scripture loves that tension. There is a moment that defines the character's life, and they have to step out into the unknown and into the world and into risk. And, and that's, a, that's a crazy concept to think about just for our own lives. When something drastic happens in our lives and it causes us to have to step out, we can look at that, especially with what we know in these stories and in the scripture, we can look at that and go, oh, wow, something big is about to happen in my life. God's going to use this in a huge way because he does that in all of these characters' lives. So Moses flees. He's a murderer. He's a deserter. He flees. He's out uh, of, of Egypt. He settles down in this land. He finds this guy named Jethro, and he, he settles down with one of his daughters, and he becomes a shepherd. So let's track the narrative real quick. We've got slave, miracle child, slave, uh, child of Pharaoh, huge privilege, murderer, uh, deserter, and now a shepherd. So I think he's kind of made out like a bandit here. He's a shepherd in this land, and, and he's, he's tending to these flocks. And then the story gets even more interesting. This, this time passes, so Moses is getting to be an older man. And in most stories, in most cases, this is kind of the moment where we go, and Moses lived happily ever after. He was a shepherd, no big deal, awesome. But that's not what happens in this story. So let's, let's go to the... Um, the text here, this is in chapter 3, and this is when Moses encounters the bush. And this is where we're going to stick for this morning. So I'm sorry this story is so long, uh, but now we're going to get to the good stuff. So now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he fled, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God, where the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over there and see the strange sight. Why does the bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Wow. So the framework here, Moses is this, is this miracle child. There's already been miracles. There's, there's God's hand all over this story. But God reveals himself to Moses in this flaming bush, speaks to him audibly, and this is where the story takes off. So a lot of weirdness has already happened in Moses' life, and things are about to get much, much stranger. And the coolest part about the Moses story is that God uses Moses even though his life had been defined by the world as a murderer and a deserter, and it's in his vulnerable, broken space that God uses the passion of Moses not to act on Moses' vengeful wishes, he's already done that, but to act on God's plan. So, uh, quick story. My wife and I, Chelsea, uh, had lice two weeks ago. 
So she, yeah, she's a kindergarten teacher. And so I get uh, probably like every year there's, there's one like ailment that you get that you're only supposed to get when you're like five years old. So we've had pink eye, uh, head lice, um, just awful, awful things that you're supposed to go through as a five-year-old, but never as an adult. And the thing now is like Chelsea's immune system is like rocking because she's there all the time, but I'm not there all the time. So she'll just bring back these lovely little diseases and I'll like always get them. And somehow she is able to like run free and, and frolic. Um, but this time was the worst. Like I got nothing is as bad as head lice. So we're, we're out to dinner and we get a, a phone call and Chelsea, and she's like, it's my boss. Should I pick it up? So she picks it up and she hangs up the phone and her eyes are just like, Gruh. and she's like, and I'm like, what, what happened? Did someone died? She's like, no, but I have head lice. And I was like, what? Uh, it turns out that one of the most rambunctious students in her class had inherited this lice from another playmate, and she had spread it around the entire class. So over 90% of the class had head lice, including the two teachers of the class, which meant, in my head, as soon as she said that, I'm like itching all over, and I'm like, oh no, I definitely have it. So we go back, and then we have to actually, like I was thinking, is there like a shampoo or something we need to get? I'm Googling like how we get rid of these things. It turns out that the shampoos like are just sort of like a like it might work like it's not it's not at all guaranteed that you're going to get rid of the lice through shampoo which of course is the easiest way to do things no 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 it gets far more complicated you actually have to go on Craigslist and hire a person called the lice fairy who will come into your home and will inspect your home and then will go through every strand of hair on your head with a special comb plucking out every last tiny bug that has infested your head. So this lady comes over, she does all this, and, and then after that, we were forced to basically light our entire apartment on fire. Uh, we, we had to put everything that we came in contact with or came in contact with our heads, which I have a lot of hats, so that was just a whole laundry load of hats, but into a dryer or into the freezer. So our freezer is packed. It looked like we had murdered someone because it was the week before the Stranger Things thing, so we had a blonde wig in there. It was so weird. You'd like open it up, there'd be like a steak and a blonde wig. Um, so we, we fumigated the entire apartment. And in the process, we had to put our new comforter. We just bought this new comforter. We had to put it into the dryer. And uh, we didn't read the label on the new comforter. And so the dryer literally caught on fire. And the comforter caught on fire. And so we have a, like, a freshly torched comforter if anyone's in the market. But it was like a half-lit-up comforter. And this is at like 9.30 at night. It's pitch black in our like apartment building. And, and I'm watching the dryer catch on fire going like this but in my head, you know, as a pastor, I'm thinking, I'm going to use it. <laughs> uh, and, and here it is. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. The story of Moses uh, is that there's, there's always, there's, there's an easy way and there's a hard way. And very, very often in the story of God, it's the hard way that has to be taken. God, I wish that there was a shampoo that could have just wiped out all of the lice in my head. But there wasn't. There was a deep, deep, deep process that had to be done. We had to go deep into, uh, into our apartment and, and light our comforter on fire. <laughs> we had to do all of this stuff to get rid of the actual issue. It wasn't as simple as on the surface. But I think in our lives, so often we look to the surface to try and solve the problem, and we ignore the stuff that's just rotting down beneath. Let's look at the symbolism of the burning bush for a moment. We have a bush. That, can you show that to us? That's beautiful. Um, <laughs> we have a shrubbery, right? Why, so why a bush? Why a shrubbery? What, what is that for? 
the word in Hebrew that they use for this bush is called Sena. Everyone say that with me, Sena. Excellent, Sena. And the mountain, so this is a spoiler alert, we're fast forwarding the story a little bit, but Moses is going to go and with the help of God, he's going to free the Israelites. They're going to cross the Red Sea and they're going to arrive at this mountain called Sinai. So there's Sena and there's Sinai. And to the Hebrew people, when they're reading this, it's like this big wink, like, oh, Sena, Sinai, like the bush, the promise, and then the mountain, the safety. So it's, it's this bush to a mountain. Why a bush? And then I'm, I understand the mountain. The mountain is this big, glorious, like strong thing that you're never going to be able to move. And it's like this huge rock thing. And God's going to come on clouds with fire, literally, and reveal himself. But why is he revealing himself in this humble little bush? So, senna. Senna is a word for bush, but more accurately, it is a fun British word uh, for bramble. Does anyone know what a bramble is? Chris is from England. Bramble? No? Okay, cool. It's, a, it's like a blackberry bush, right? And you'll see them in English gardens. Um, and just like if you've heard my mustard, reads, uh, mustard seed rant, mustard seed is not the smallest seed, but Jesus talks about it, and it is like mustard is something that you plant and you cannot get rid of. So if you plant it in your garden, you're planting a mustard garden. Like that's just nothing else is going to grow in that garden. Uh, the same thing, I was curious to see, well, what is, what, what's a bramble got going on? What's a blackberry bush got going on that would be significant in this story? And when I looked into it, it was the crazy coolest thing in the world. God reveals himself in a blackberry bush-like type thing. Those bushes, in the same way that the mustard seed it just runs rampant, they run rampant, and they're really hard for gardeners to control. But even more than that, the reason that they are so hard to control is when you plant a bramble, the roots go so deep that it is nearly impossible to get rid of this thing without fully excavating underneath. So what is God doing? He's got something on the surface that's on fire, but down below, there are roots and roots and roots. There's something grounded in purpose. And that, my friends, is an amazing metaphor for God's plan for what's about to happen. See, there's the surface level, and God is revealing himself. But he's saying it's not just the surface level, one that is not burning up. So that, in, that includes this metaphor for, like, everlasting longevity. But there's also this plan to root Israel, to get them out of slavery, get them out of oppression, and root them in a safe space. So that's my bramble rant for this morning. And I'm going to appreciate black book, uh, blackberry bushes whenever I see them now. Um, the bush is on fire. Our bramble bush must smell like blackberries. Bush is on fire. Moses noticed this. And, and the scripture says that he has to actually turn and go to the bush. So I was reading up on rabbis and what they thought about this passage. This is a really key moment. This is the moment that like, like they get into Moses, the idea that you can go and free all of those people. You can go and help. You can do something with your life. This is the moment he receives his purpose, right? Like This is huge. But the crazy part is the burning bush is not in some like crazy far-off land. It says he's, he walks far off into the land, but the, the rabbis will tell you that what Moses was doing was he was guiding his herd, because he was a shepherd, he was guiding his herd sort of what would be considered his morning commute. So think about your morning commute, right? Some of us, I used to drive from Hollywood to Agora Hills almost every day, and that drive, even though it was long, it was like an hour in traffic, it kind of became sort of this like... I just shut down, like my brain is not thinking about it, and it became sort of this like, yeah, it's going to be an hour, but I know this thing like the back of my hand. 
So much so that I like you, you begin to distract yourself, right? So you put on podcasts, you put on music, uh, audiobooks, whatever it is that you're listening to in the car, and you're sort of paying more attention to what's going on in the car than you are the surroundings. I, I hope you're paying attention to the road, but the surroundings and the buildings and all the stuff that you've seen a thousand times before. This is Moses in this moment. He's walking in this part of the field that he's seen a thousand times before. Nothing new. All of a sudden, there's this bush that's on fire, but guys, that's normal. This is in a desert, so there would be little brush fires all the time, and the important thing to recognize is if there was a brush fire, that would have been a threat to Moses' herd, so we would have been like, get out of here, guys. We are running away from the bush, not towards it, but in this particular instance, Moses sees something, and he pays attention, and the greatest lesson we can learn out of this passage is to simply be paying attention. Moses encounters the bush because in his morning commute, his mundane daily life, that's where God decides to show up. That's really important for us, guys, because constantly we're thinking, well, if only I, like, I pray harder, God's going to do something miraculous in my life. Or if only I'm like, following in this way, and if only I don't like, watch these certain movies or anything that like, sort of the fundamental Christian life will tell you, that's the way that you're going to encounter God. If only I sing this song more earnestly, I might encounter God. But what we see in this passage is that when God wants to literally save an entire nation, he just pops up in the everyday and the mundane. I wonder how many burning bushes we are walking by every single day where God is showing up on our morning commute in the most mundane, easy parts of our lives. And God is saying, look, I'm on fire right here. (laughs) Come, see what I have for you. Help, right? It's in the everyday and the mundane. We are in a week right now where our country is more divided than it's ever been before. It's getting bad. And I think that if we're going to look at the story of Moses and look at the care of God and what he does to the people that are oppressed, that are in a foreign land, that are hurting, we have to realize that we need to start paying attention to these burning bushes in our lives because there are going to be places that we can help. There are going to be places that we can unify. There are going to be places where we can actually do the good news, the gospel, and share Jesus with people. But we're not going to be able to do that unless we're paying attention. We're not going to be able to do that unless we step towards the flame. That's my tip for later. Step towards the flame, right? Step into that situation, into that danger, that risk. So this morning, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. So Bobby has painted this for us. And you're going to take a brush, and you're going to dip it in the paint, and you're going to add to the flame. Because what that's going to signify is after that, we're going to take communion together. And so when we take communion together, I want you to like approach this burning bush the same way as you would approach the bread and the wine. What we're going to do is remember that coming up to that burning bush was a risk for Moses. It was a big deal, but it, 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 it changed the course of human history, right? So I invite you to step into that in the same sort of bravery and to leave this place understanding the same way that Moses left the burning bush with his entire life changed. Leave understanding that maybe you've changed a little bit as you've encountered this new thing, this mission that God is sending us on. Because guys, the mission of this bush, the mission here is to walk outside into Santa Monica, into Los Angeles, into the place that we live. And our mission as the church right now needs to be to heal. With all the division and craziness that's going on, it is to heal. We're supposed to be places of peace. We're supposed to be people of peace. And so we're gonna step away from this morning with that new mission, that new 
So make your mark on that. That's, I think that's a beautiful thing that we're going to be able to do together as a community. And then take communion. Experience the bread and the wine. Remember Christ. Um, and I want to I just give like uh, a minute. You guys have uh, connection cards uh, that are either you're sitting on them or they're next to you. Fill those out with your prayer requests. Fill those out with your, your hurts, your joys. We want to hear and be a part of your lives. And you can drop that in the community uh, box right there as well as ties and offering because we're called to be generous. Um, just reiterate, walk into this understanding that God's calling us to something outside of these walls, and that is to bring peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding, the peace of Jesus Christ.